Well, good morning. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29. I'm going to tell you in advance, this is not a pretty story. This is a sad story, but there's some great things about this story, and that's why Mark has included that in his gospel. You know, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And if you look at his ministry, it was so amazing. This guy went out into the desert. He was an eccentric kind of guy. He, I mean, he, he lived off of the land. He ate locusts, drank locusts and wild honey. He wore, wore camel skin as his garment with a leather belt around his waist. I mean, John the Baptist was a man of the, you know, of the people. He, he, actually, he was a little bit more eccentric than the average person. But what John the Baptist did was he cast a vision for people for what could be. He told them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, your lives could be better. You can be forgiven. You can be hopeful and expectant and know that the goodness of God is coming your way. I mean, John the Baptist had this incredible message and he was so infectious as he presented it that even though he preached in the wilderness, people came. He was the most popular preacher of the day. And I'm just gonna say that if you were planning a preaching and teaching ministry, you probably would wanna go downtown and you know, rent the Gilloy's Theater or you know, Hammond's or Juanita Kay, someplace nice, cushy, ple pleasant to be. That would help improve your crowds. But that wasn't what John the Baptist was about. He was out in the wilderness. He made it hard to hear him. He made it hard to find him. It was a difficult place, a hard venue. People had to come prepared with food and water. But John's message was so compelling, the crowds grew and grew. You know, living with hope and having an expectancy in your spirit for the goodness of God that's the only way to really live. A family that has good things to look forward to, they're expecting something good, is a good family to be a part of. I've told you this before, but I remember as a kid, my favorite Christmas ever was when my parents, very excitedly around the table a few months before Christmas, began to talk in code. They, they began to have a conversation about what they called the airplane. That was their code. See, they, they said, we are preparing one of the most exciting gifts we've ever given to you kids, and um, you know, we can't tell you what it is. And so at the dinner table, uh, we would hear conversations like, well, uh, Boyd, did, did you order the airplane? Yes, I did. Well, Donna, has, has the airplane come in? Have they called? And so we, we're like, Mom and Dad, what in the world is the airplane? Oh, we can't tell you, but you're going to love it. It's the best gift. I mean, for weeks, we were enjoying a gift. We didn't even know what it was. The expectancy and the hope that we had for the best gift our parents had ever given us. And then I'll never forget that when finally the day arrived, the airplane was there. And you know what it was? It was a miniature pool table. It was so awesome. It was the real deal. I mean, it was with the green felt, the cool uh, pool balls, the, you know, the cues, and you know, you have to put the scratch stuff on. The, I'm, I'm not still a great pool 
guy, but I know we have some people in the room who are really good. But anyway, it, it was the coolest thing. And the best thing about it was that my dad was an incredible pool player. And he would gather us around the table and he would show us how to shoot, how to, how to get the angles right, how to bounce off of here to hit there, how to hit this ball that's in the way to do this. And man, my brother and I, Greg, we spent hours around the airplane, which is really a pool table. And we loved it most when my dad would come home and we would come over and he would play with us. I look back now, some of my most fond memories are playing pool with my dad around this special present that they had prepared for us. You know, the role of John the Baptist was he was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, he was the announcer. He was telling everyone, he's coming. The gift of God is coming. The, the kingdom of heaven is near. His, his message challenged people in ways that people weren't challenging them. Uh, he, he would say hard things with great love and great expectancy. So I want to just, before we read the story, I want to just give you Three points. The first point is, who is John the Baptist anyway? you got to know who he is to understand this story. Well, first of all, Jesus says in Matthew 11 that, I, I tell you, among those born of women, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mean, you know what that says? That, that John the Baptist had reached the pinnacle of accomplishment for any man. He, I mean, it, the greatest is someone, maybe you and I can be the greatest, not greater than anybody else, but accomplish our role, uh, fulfill our destiny, and do the plan of God in our life. That would be the greatest thing we could ever do. Any man or woman, I mean, just live in accordance with the plan of God. That's what, that was John. The story of John's birth is fascinating. Mark doesn't go into that, but other, other gospel writers do. John's birth was amazing because he was born to a couple old people. I mean, they had prayed and prayed for a child, and they never got a child. And, you know, John's father was named Zechariah. He was a priest, and his mother and his father were both described as being righteous in the sight of God. Amazingly, even though they were disappointed that they never got what they prayed for the most, which was a child, their love and devotion and service to God never waned. It's easy to love God when you're getting everything you ask for. It's another story to love God even when you're disappointed, even when things aren't working out the way you've asked God. Can you trust God even when you're disappointed, confused? Zechariah and Elizabeth did. Zacharias was burning incense in the temple one day and he went in to offer the incense and to the right of the incense table um, altar there an angel appeared now what do you do if an angel appears you're going to be afraid because oh my goodness an angel is standing here beside me and the the, the angel tells Zechariah hey you're, you're going to have a child your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a child, a son. And God's named the son already. His name is supposed to be John. Luke chapter 1, verse 14, you know, he goes on. I'm just going to go through this real quickly. He, he will be, this, he, this is the angel describing. This is your son, let me tell you about your son. 
Your son that has not yet been conceived but is coming, your son. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice at his birth. I believe that. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, he is never to take wine or ferment a drink because he's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That's almost unheard of. Um, he will bring back many people uh, of, the, of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the parents of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he's talking about the coming of the Messiah. Zacharias asked the angel after this announcement, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Okay, so I love how this flows. The angel almost kind of like says, hey buddy, how can you be sure of this? An angel is talking to you, right? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I'm gonna tell you who I am. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now, because you asked, you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. For nine months, Zacharias was unable to speak a word. This passage then goes um, to, to the next angelic announcement of the coming of a baby. This was Jesus, the Son of God. And Mary, when she hears that she's gonna conceive a baby, is then, it, this, this like an unimaginable thing is confirmed in the context of family. And, and the, the angel tells Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, Mary. Elizabeth's gonna have a baby. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her, and at that time Mary got ready in a hurry, and she, she went to, through the hill country of Judea. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, Heard, when she heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is unheard of. And when the baby was born, and everyone's telling Zechariah, we gotta know the name, gotta have a name, gotta have a name. Zechariah is unable to speak. And before he could even communicate anything, they said, okay, well, how about if we just call him Zechariah? Zechariah, we should call him Zechariah. He's named after you. He's your son. And, and, and Zechariah is saying no. Then all of a sudden, he speaks for the first time in nine months. His name is John. If you go to Luke chapter one, you're gonna read the beautiful song Zechariah sings over this baby but I just want to pull out a few verses. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. The prophet of the highest? That's Jesus. For you will go before 
the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John here is spoken over by his father in such beautiful language. John, after he was born and after he grew up, became the most powerful preacher of his day. He had speaking ability, but that was only matched by the fact that John legitimately walked with God every day. Like some of the saints of old, John was courageous and bold and coupled with the simplicity of his life. He was not gonna use his ministry to get ahead or get stuff. I mean, he was content with camel's hair, a leather belt, locusts, and wild honey. That's all he needed. You can't bribe a man who has what he needs, right? I mean, he wasn't looking for anything to put him for, himself forward. It was his purity of heart and his focus on the mission for which he was born that made him so powerful. And then he would proclaim to the people, hey, listen. You know, all of you who are disappointed with your lives, you know, all of you who feel like you are so bad that God doesn't have anything for you. you. You know, all of you who feel like that your life is a dead end. You know, the confusion, the sadness, the despondency and the purposelessness, the, the brokenness in your families and relationships. Hey, do you know what? That could actually change. You don't have to live like this because God, who made you, has come near, and he's going to change you. John, as he spoke, was very direct and to the point, bold, didn't mince words. This is what he said as he preached. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Amen. That's not very cheerful, is it? But why do people listen? Because John's heart was to proclaim the goodness of God. And he said, you got to get through this. You got to understand why you're not experiencing that. He says, you know what? If you have two shirts, give one to someone else who doesn't have a shirt. And do the same with your food. Just come on, find somebody and give them your fruit. food. This is great advice for us, right? Tax collectors. They came to John and they asked, what should we do? And he said, well, let me tell you what you should do, tax collectors. Don't collect more than you're supposed to. Oh, okay, that's a novel thought. How, how about the soldiers? Well, what, what should we do? He says, well, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Stop what you're doing. How about to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He calls them, you brood of vipers. Oh, my goodness. He tells the truth without malice and with hope, declaring that things could actually change in your life. Now, the, these commands of John the Baptist, they're not a surprise. They have been previously stated throughout the Old Testament. They're just really hard to do. Do you have any commandments that you know pretty well? 
It's not that you don't know, it's just that they're really hard to do. Like, don't lie. Always forgive. Don't take revenge. It's not new information. It's just hard to do. John cast this great vision that God has come. And if we would repent, the kingdom of heaven is so near, it would invade our lives. John was saying, you know what you need? You need to come to a full stop and turn around. Would you just say those words with me? Because I want you to get them. You've got to come to a full stop. Say full stop. Boy, there's at least eight people still awake. I'm so grateful for you. Let's try that again. You've got to come to a full stop. Let me hear you. And turn around. Because change is possible. Seek the Lord. Listen to the old stories where God says through his prophets, you know, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I can put in, into you a heart of flesh. I'm actually able to write the laws in, in your heart so that you're not working outside in, it's inside out. You, you are like, you want to do God's will. God wants to step into your life. He calls people to himself. And then John added this. He says, hey, meet me down by the river. And those of you who are seeking God and willing to repent and would pledge your lives to follow God, come, I'll baptize you. And it will symbolize a new life, a new beginning. John was the greatest preacher of his day. People came from all over to hear him. John's central message was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You got to repent. You got you to lean in and let God change you. Um, the sin in our lives is what poisons us. And he told them specifically what they needed to do. It's no wonder that John was very clear when it came to the colonial ruler, King Herod. I mean, he pointed out what no one else was willing to mention. Hey, Herod, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Newsflash, but nobody would say it. Now, you know, if you're a colonial ruler and you want to be good at your job, number one thing is don't offend the moral sensibilities of the people you are trying to lead. Like divorcing your wife in public and going and marrying your brother's wife. That's grotesque. That is an absolute violation of the re religious and moral law of the people you are trying to influence. You lose your moral standing to be their leader when you do something so ugly as that. But John was willing to he was willing to tell Herod, Herod, it's not right. 
that leads us to Mark 6. I want to read it. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. We're going to go fast. Verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, um, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But, Herod, but when Herod heard, uh, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Okay, so there's, he's fighting stuff in his own life. And, and then it goes on to tell why he's so worried. John the Baptist has come back from the dead. That means I am in big trouble because we're dealing with divine power beyond death. Okay, and then it goes on to tell exactly why he was so disturbed. Uh, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he, married, he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he, he heard him, he did, many things, uh, he, he, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out, said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came back in with haste to the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I mean, isn't that, isn't that just ugly? I mean, this is a terrible story. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when... When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb. Okay, so there you have the ugly story. We know who John the Baptist is. Now, who is Herod? Now, I just want to say this. There are so many Herods in the New Testament, it is mind-boggling and confusing. Now, I want to just show you a slide, okay? There are at least, there are six of them in the New Testament. Do you see that right there? Do you ever wonder why you're confused? Man, I thought Herod was the one who killed the children when Jesus was born. Yep, it was Herod. Wait, this is another Herod. Yep, another Herod. Okay, here are the Herods. Herod the Great, Christmas story. Herod, Archelaus, uh, Joseph to Nazareth. And so Joseph comes back from Egypt. He doesn't go back to Nazareth because Herod Archelaus has succeeded Herod the Great. He is the ruler of their hometown, Bethlehem. So not going there. Herod Antipas, this is the man we're talking about now, he killed John the Baptist and he married, married Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. Herod Philip ruled the north and east of Galilee. Herod Agrippa was eaten by worms and acts. Herod Agrippa II, trial of Paul in Caesarea. So are you confused yet? Yes. It's crazy. You know what the family business of the Herods was? Colonial rulership over Judea and Galilee under imperial Rome. 
Rome appointed, appointed this family dynasty, and they ruled for Rome. Make no mistake, Rome was in charge. But one of the things these colonial rulers had to be, be sure they didn't do was to offend the cultural sensibilities of the people they were ruling. But that's exactly what this Herod had done when he chose to put his own personal desires over what was considered kosher and appropriate behavior. And he does something so grotesque as marrying his brother's wife. Think Jerry Springer. I hope you don't watch Jerry Springer. I think Jerry Springer just died, didn't he? But this is where we were. You know who was maddest about John's calling out the king? Herodias. Oh, she was ticked. Angry at John the Baptist. I wish that, I wish that prophet would just shut up. Why? Her strategy for life was to marry the right Herod to advance her position, her influence, her wealth, and security. So she skipped from Philip to this Herod we're talking about. And if only John would shut up, maybe she could become a respectable queen. But he wouldn't shut up. And she hated it. And she hated him. And she wanted to kill him. And the only reason she didn't was because Herod said, I won't let you kill him. In fact, Herod decides to put him in prison because he knew that he could keep him safe if he was in his prison. And then in verse 20, this odd thing happens. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. So he was strangely attracted to this man who was calling out what was wrong in his life that he already knew, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. We, when God convicts us, we already know what he's talking about. We act like we don't know. Oh, really, God, I didn't notice that that was actually the sin that I chose to commit. I mean, I, have, I, have I done that before? 100%. Have you done that before? Mm, I'm going to let you speak for your own self. But I'm guessing you may also be like every other person who's ever lived. It was hard to be Herod. You know why? Because Herod... Wondered what he wanted, but he was miserable. In fact, all the Herods were pretty miserable because he was all about power and control. And here's the truth about our desire to be in control and most powerful. If you're all about power and control, you usually end up eating alone. Because you can't have a relationship with somebody who is always about being in control. Do you know how you can have a good relationship with people in your life? By choosing humility and servanthood. Mom and dad, you want to have a good relationship with your children? Yeah, you got to be the leader. you got to be the parent. But you know what? If you're all about power and control, your kids will not want to be around you. 
if you want to be a good husband or a good wife, if, you, if, you, if you've got to have it always your way, where are we going to eat? We're only going to go to eat where she wants to go to eat. We're only going to go to eat where he wants to eat. We only, I get it. The only person who makes the decision is, and you, you fill in the blank, if that's where you're headed, you're headed down a dangerous and lonely path. This was Herod. And he was strangely attracted to the message of John because truth can set you free. Truth can hurt, but it can set you free, especially when it's declared in love with hope. And that's what John was doing. The only problem was Herod would never make the decision to follow Christ. Lastly, the tragedy of the story is this. You know, I think I used to feel so sad reading the story of John the Baptist because I thought, wow, how awful is it that um, John the Baptist, this great man, this prophet, this introducer of the Messiah, the man who baptized Jesus, who most likely heard the voice of the Father and saw the Spirit descend, and he was like right there in the middle of the Trinity, which is an amazing place. And then he dies. He dies because of the whim of Herodias, this woman married to the king, unceremoniously had his head chopped off and brought on a platter. It just kind of turns your stomach. And I used to think, wow, this is such a tragedy. You know, I think so many times, you and I live in the middle of this. We pray for miracles from God, which we should. Please, if I get sick, pray a miracle over me. Pray, a, I ask for divine healing. You know what I'm saying, right? But we, we, we can't move to the point where we're saying, if we obey God, God would always keep us from tragedy, loss, illness, and death. Because that can't be true. Look around. We live in the tension of these two very important truths. Pray hard, believe hard. We're going to have a time of extended prayer today. I want you to come with your needs. Come on, let's beg God. Let's die with our begging requests on our lips. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Because God is this good, this compassionate this generous, this merciful, so why not ask? We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He stands at the throne of God, making intercession for us all the time. Are we going to leave that on the table? Don't do it. But at the same time, don't live your life with this equation. If I obey God, he'll always give me what I want and need and prevent any tragedy or loss or even death from coming to me or anybody in my family that I love because that can't be true as well. You know, I, lo I love what Tim Keller had to say about this passage. He said, yeah, the, this is a story of great tragedy, but the great tragedy is not John the Baptist. It's Herod. John the Baptist dies triumphantly, having accomplished his task, fulfilled his mission, and brought many people to a place where they could hear the message of Jesus, and he changed everything. He was victorious. Herod, on the other hand, he was the tragedy.
he'd like to hear, but he wouldn't choose to surrender to Jesus and obey God. He wouldn't do it. You know, one of Billy Graham's greatest concerns, does anybody here still know who Billy Graham is? I just need to make sure. He was one of the greatest evangelists of this past generation. I'm, I'm telling you, incredible. Many people came to Christ because of his, his evangelistic efforts all over the world. It was amazing. But you know what Billy Graham's greatest concern was? He, he was concerned because he felt like it could be true that 85% of the church-going people were not really saved. Does that kind of stir you up or scare you or make you think, well, like that means out of this group of 100, there's only 15 who are really saved? I'm not saying that is true. But he does kind of echo the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I mean, you've got to make a decision. You've got to choose. You've you got to accept Christ. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonder, wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is God responding, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh, my don't let this be you. The tragedy of this story is Herod. And the good news of the preaching of John the Baptist is that we can repent because God has come to help us. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus came, and he died for us. And he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John introduced him to be. And he took all of our sin on him and hung on a cross until he was able to say, it is finished. Redemption had been paid in full. And then he died, gave up his spirit, and three days later, he rose from the grave and he proved that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. John the Baptist dies a triumphant death. So many verses in Scripture talk about how that God's plan for us is, doesn't just come in this life. It go, you, if all you think about is this life, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. But you know, John the Baptist and the saints of old, and you read through the, book, the book, books of the New Testament, you know, they had this clear understanding of eternity, that death didn't end. Death was a door to somewhere, and if you were in Christ, it was a door into the presence of Almighty God. And in Ephesians 2, I, I love this in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you what, you think this is a beautiful day and this is a good time, this is nothing compared to what's ahead of us. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 1 Corinthians 2.9, it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be okay. We can even process tragedy as Christians and still have hope and expectancy. When 
my wife and I and our family were missionaries in the Philippines. We, we, were, we were horrified along with all the other missionaries when Martin and Gracia Burnham, who were New Tribes missionaries in the Philippines, were abducted on May 27, 2001, as they were celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary by what is called the Abu Sayyaf. It is a Muslim terrorist group. They took many hostages, but they kept Martin and Gracia to the very end until one afternoon on June 7, 2002, over a year since their abduction, the Philippine military attempted another rescue. Tragically, Martin was killed during the gunfight. Gracia was wounded, but she survived. She came back to the States and authored two books, and she was reunited with her three small children. And this story was really like so real to us because you know, we had mutual friends with the Burnhams, and every missionary's greatest fear is that somebody's going to get kidnapped and held captive, and, and it happened to them. And, um, and then Gracia came back to the States, and her kids had been immediately taken out of the Philippines after their kidnapping just for protection. They lived in Kansas with their grandparents, and... And then, it, you know, Gracia seemed to thrive. She wrote two books, visited the Oval Office, and was congratulated by the President of the United States for her service. And, and we had her as a guest here at church. And I remember the night before she was to get up and share, um, Gary and Lisa Wilson and our mission committee took her uh, to dinner so that we could get to know her. And um, as we sat at the table, we enjoyed a wonderful meal and a lot of conversation. We identified mutual friends. She even said, oh, lions. I remember when I was younger in a church in Kansas City, we prayed for the lions in the lion's den. I said, yeah, that was us. I thought that was the corniest thing my dad ever thought of. But anyway, Gracia Burnham remembered it years later. And as we ate, the thought came to me. But Gracia will go home, and Martin's not going to be there. And Martin hasn't been there for any of the kids' graduations. They never saw him again since they were abducted. He didn't attend any of their weddings. He doesn't know any of the grandchildren. And I was just like overcome with this sense of sadness. So as we were leaving, I said to Gracia, I said, Gracia, um, I am so sorry for your great loss. And I'll never forget her response. She smiled and she raised her hand up and pointed up and said, he is worthy. Wow. He's worthy. And all the martyrs throughout all time, they proclaim the goodness of God. And they declare, we have given our lives. Just like John the Baptist. Because he is worthy.
So, before we go to our time of communion and an extended prayer, I just want to close with this and say that if you're here today and you do an honest evaluation of where you are in your relationship with God and you have not repented and fully surrendered your life and asked for the salvation that only Jesus can give. Can I just say you you should do it now. Please do it now. Please let your life be a life of triumph and victory, not the tragedy of indecision and eternal loss. Also, before we go to communion, in Corinthians it tells us that when we eat communion, I mean, we, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And in verse 27 of that chapter in Corinthians, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Did you hear the hope in that? Hey, listen, God's like, I'm ready to take you back anytime. Come on. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Two things. Number one, if you've never accepted Christ, if it's uncertain, if you're lingering in this zone of not sure, maybe, uh, love to come to church, love to hear the message, mm, would you please today call upon the name of the Lord and ask for him to save you? And then secondly, as we all go to communion, we all need to have a personal moment of examination. I mean, just like say, God, you know, so speak to me. If there's something I need to confess, I'm going to confess it because he'll forgive you right there, right now. Did you know that? It's It's a wonderful thing. And then you can take communion with a clear conscience. Don't promise him you'll be perfect because you can't make that promise, but you can say, God, for this moment at this time, forgive me and help me, transform me by the power of your Holy Spirit. I'm here again. I need you again. I'll need you every day. You'll listen to that prayer. So I'm inviting you all to stand. Would you stand, please?